Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Welcome to CounterPoints. Happy Wednesday. Spring is in the air. Ryan, how you doing? I'm great. How about you? I'm good. We've got a big show. We're going to start talking about the surprise settlement that came yesterday afternoon in the Fox News case over defamation with Dominion. We're then going to talk about debt ceiling negotiations, which continue to be impossible. We're going to talk about Elon Musk's interview with Tucker Carlson. We're going to talk about a crazy story out of Oklahoma. We have some audio you're not going to want to miss. We're going to talk about Representative Jeff Jackson, who is all over TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Republican, who has quite a social media presence i'm going to talk about seems not real yeah it's it's interesting i have to always check like okay this is not a it's a deep fake yeah this this is not a deep fake of what you (laughs) want a congressman to talk like it actually (laughs) is a congressman is that right apparently Uh, i'm going to talk about some developments in a stock ban that's now on the table in the senate and the house and ryan you've got some interesting audio for us as well Yes, Chris Sununo didn't realize the tape was running, uh, and so we got some candid comments from him. The new, uh, Republican New Hampshire governor will play that. Uh, Lauren Windsor over at the Undercurrent, uh, un- uh, kind of secret audio specialist. Yes. And so we'll, we'll play some of that later, and we'll hear from Christian Parenti, who wrote a kind of buzzy piece uh, from a left perspective arguing that Trump is actually an anti-imperialist, <laughs> infuriated a lot of people on the left. Uh, we're going to have him kind of respond to some of the uh, the critiques of his piece uh, since it has uh, come out. But yes, the big news, the surprise settlement, and it's impossible to think about how Fox came to this decision without thinking it in kind of the Logan Roy voice <laughs> as he's instructing Jerry to just sign the thing. Yeah. Uh, Logan Roy himself would have done better probably, right? So what did they agree to? I think $787 billion plus... A million, almost a billion. Sorry, yeah. million. $787 million plus basically... An admission that, and we can put this first element up, admission that 
some of the things that they said about Dominion were false, they along with a couple of other acknowledgments. Yeah, right? they say, we acknowledge the court's rulings, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. The settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. That's their statement uh, when the settlement came out. And reporters had flocked to Wilmington, where the suit was being, was set to be heard. It was delayed. Then it was delayed a couple of hours. Everyone's wondering what the heck is going mm -hmm. on. It seemed like the only possible answer there would be a settlement, or the plausible answer would be a settlement. And indeed, that's what happened around 4 p.m. yesterday. You have all of these reporters in Wilmington so eager. Brian Stelter actually had gotten a special contract with Vanity Fair to cover this trial, if that's any indication of how hot this was in the media. 1.6 there was $1.6 billion defamation suit that ends up getting settled for $787 billion. No surprise. Million again. Million. Yeah. We keep doing this. That would be a lot of money. I like how I corrected yeah. you the first time, yeah. and then <laughs> I did the exact same yeah. thing. A source has also confirmed to Axios that Fox will not be required to give any apologies or retractions as part of that settlement deal. So if we can put up the second element here, uh, this is much of their statement. They said, quote, we are pleased to have reached a settlement of our dispute with Dominion Voting Systems. We acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. And you're right, that acknowledge is a key word there. <laughs> like, okay, the court did say this. We acknowledge that. Uh, this settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. We are hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward from these issues. How sweet of them, isn't it? <laughs> you can see A3 if we put that up on the screen. Uh, you can, if you're, if you're watching, you can see there what that looks like. Now, there's a really interesting development because when the settlement is announced, there's a fascinating announcement that comes from Smartmatic. Let's Did you up, see this? Yeah, A4 here. This is a big deal. So Fox is not just uh, being sued by Dominion. This is a statement that came out after the settlement from Smartmatic's lawyer. They're another uh, voting software company, another voting, voting booth company. Dominion's litigation exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose the rest. Smartmatic remains committed to clearing its name, recouping the significant damage done to the company, and holding Fox accountable for undermining democracy. All right, that's huge. And Slate says that uh, this case, quote, they're, they're quoting an, an analyst who says it, quote, appears to be the more dangerous of the two major cases against Fox. Um, the other interesting thing is that this case is not super far along. So as Slate notes, all of that discovery that came out in the Dominion trial, there's more discovery to come in the Smartmatic mm -hmm. trial, most likely. So that's something to pay attention to uh, because that means there could be more emails, more communications, more text messages. And that's partially why Fox settles in the Dominion case is to at least, you know, this is a, a good explanation for why they would decide to settle is they don't want their executives taking the stand in an extremely public setting. And for all the people who are sad that this trial is not going to go to trial, <laughs> that this lawsuit is not going to go to trial and are now hopeful that the Smartmatics one will go to trial and that Fox will probably finally get its public come up comeuppance in the courtroom, I would caution people to remember that these are businesses, these are companies. Mm -hmm. And so you are investing your hope in the salvation of democracy into a business. And the business, I would say, is playing off of your sensitivities on this question. By, in, in their quote, when they say, uh, 
you know, Smartmatic remains committed to clearing to, to, and holding Fox accountable for undermining democracy. Like they, they know exactly who they're talking to. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, yeah. they're riling up the public to get them to support this, uh, this, this clause, this claim, which then puts more pressure on Fox to then offer a settlement that's as big as the one that they gave to, uh, uh, to Dominion. And this, in the end, these are businesses. Yeah. And so if Fox comes with hundreds of millions of dollars, which is, you know, it's, it's $800 million is multiples of what a Dominion is even worth. Yeah. And so to, for an executive to get that kind of offer, they're not gonna, they're, they're just not gonna take that to court. Like, the, the, they cannot be your saviors. They cannot be your champions. There's now, I, I do think people are misunderstanding uh, or and underestimating how big of a settlement this. This is one of the biggest defamation settlements like, it yeah, is. It yeah. is the biggest. The in, biggest. in American yeah. history, the other one was 177 million. Right. So we're talking about 787 million. There's an incredible picture from Alex Wong at Getty Images of the Dominion attorneys walking out of the courthouse in Wilmington with the biggest smiles on their faces you have ever seen. Um, it's like because doing the math. What's a third of 787? Right. Yeah. To your point, I mean, yeah. this is like huge and. To your, again, to your point, there's no company that can afford $2 billion. It, let's say they end up settling in a similar situation with Smartmatic. There's no company that is going to be able to like comfortably afford $2 billion of defamation lawsuits. Like That is a chunk of Fox News' business. That's We're talking billions. But they can uncomfortably afford it. Yes, like, yeah, They will course. survive. And I think- They'll survive, yes. I think there was some hope among some out there on the left that this would bury Fox News, that it would end Fox News. And, but you have to remember, they had that, uh, ha they had that, what, that hacking and wiretapping scandal in the UK about 10 years ago. Mm. You remember where a bunch of their tabloid journalists were, ba were basically like wiretapping. N News Corp. Yeah, yeah, News Corp. They had to put billions aside to prepare for, uh, you know, ultimate verdicts and fines and other, and other penalties. Putting billions aside for wrongdoing is is a cost of doing business for global corporations. Yes, uh, like if anybody's seen Succession, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. that this that this is how you how you push ahead. You you kind of ask for, for you you push ahead. You ask for forgiveness later, and if the forgiveness costs you a couple billion dollars, you pay that. But you're right that it, it's a lot of money. Yeah, like it 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 matters to them. Absolutely, I mean two billion. Well, one billion now, roughly seven hundred eighty-seven million. Um, so I'm rounding up to a billion. But then if you add in uh, a Smartmatic suit, it's going to be really hard for them, basically, to uh, skirt this precedent. And I think that's one of the big big things that comes out of yesterday is that if you're settling for seven hundred eighty-seven million in this case, you have another case that may be as serious, if not more serious, coming ahead. Did you just set a major precedent by settling that A could invite more suits in the future and B makes it really hard to finagle out of the Smartmatic suit? And what's been the response in the kind of Fox world as, as far as you understand it? Like do they feel like, all right, we really kind of screwed up in the way that we allowed these like wildly inaccurate things to be said about these companies in service of trying to kind of drain viewership away from Newsmax and OAN and, and these others? Or does Fox feel like, you know what, we were on the ropes, It was this was a, a fight for share of the viewership on the right, we had to do what we did, and we did it, and we don't regret it. We're, it's unfortunate it's gonna cost a couple billion dollars, but that's better than kind of getting gobbled up um, by these kind of neo-maga 
out outlets. <laughs> well, I think they were always overestimating the risk of getting gobbled up by the Neomac mm, outlets. Yeah. I will say, though, that you see it in the text messages. You see it in the email communications um, with Fox Corporate. And one thing I think some people don't fully see out in public is the tension between, um, although it does spill into like reports sometimes, the tension between corporate Fox and the opinion side. Uh, the news side, I think, is generally on the same page. At least it seems to me with with the corporate side, but the opinion side and the corporate side, there should probably always be tension between mm -hmm. journalists and the business people at any news outlet. Um, but I think that tension has always existed and will probably continue to exist. You can imagine that Manhattan executives, um, even cap the most capitalistic ones, are not super happy to have to answer for um, you know the things that, the, like the subjects that Tucker Carlson covers when they go to their cocktail parties. Are there gonna be any changes? Like, does this present an opportunity for a reckoning? Like, is there anybody who is responsible for defamation to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars? I have getting onto their air. I, I mean, I don't know because this is mostly from um, hosts. I mean, they're talking about Jim yeah. Puro. Um, so I don't know. And by the way, I would have. It would have been interesting as this case progressed, and maybe the Smartmatic one will be as well. Yeah, I think it, it's, it should be more uncomfortable for the rest of the media than it was because defamation charges do set really dangerous precedents. I'm not nearly like on the same page as a lot of conservatives who want to lower the threshold for what constitutes defamation. I hate defamation lawsuits because that's a great tool to wield against journalists. Yeah. And so I think this case actually had some interesting ramifications had it gone forward um, that the media would have had to grapple with. Right. As a journalist, you don't really like to see defamation no. suits, period. Uh, on the other hand, if, <laughs> if you have certain folks in journalism just destroying the credibility of journalism, you do want some level of accountability without it being then weaponized against actual journalists who are just trying to get the truth out there. It's, I, I have complicated feelings about it. <laughs> Let's move on, uh, speaking of complications, to the debt ceiling negotiations that continue to puzzle the Republican Party. Um, right now, actually, in fact, this is from CNN. Yesterday, he made a plea to House Republicans during a closed-door meeting to back his debt ceiling plan. He's, tell yeah, he's telling Republicans that although it doesn't have to include everything they want, it will help get him to the negotiating table with President Joe Biden. Now, again, from CNN, House Republicans are insisting that any increase in the debt limit must be paired with spending cuts. And the White House is saying that the debt limit should be raised without any conditions whatsoever. So after that meeting, um, you have, we can put this next element up, Chip Roy goes on Glenn Beck's show, and Olivia Bieber, Bieber's tweeted this out. Uh, Chip Roy says, you know, McCarthy has done a good job laying out the floor for debt ceiling talks, but all also that Republicans, quote, better damn well fight for things that are not currently included in that debt ceiling plan, like undoing the damage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the damage of the IRS proposal. Chip Roy said McCarthy has, quote, a hard job, but there are still some things we need to address. McCarthy said wants to get a bill out by next week right. and get it to pressure Joe Biden. That seems incredibly unlikely. What is your sense? And for people not in the Capitol bubble, who, who's 
Who, who is Chip Roy in the ecosystem of the House House Republicans and, and, the, and the right? For a lot of people, Chip Roy probably first got on their radar during the speakership contest earlier this year when Kevin McCarthy was just fighting uh, yeah. after vote after vote after vote because Chip Roy has become a leader in the Freedom Caucus sort of circle um, and is he's, he's endorsed Ron DeSantis for president. He was Ted Cruz's chief of staff. He's sort of a, you know, Tea Party, kind of conservative mm -hmm. populist, uh, who really knows the Hill and really knows procedure and is de has definitely become a leader in those circles. So it's significant that he's saying this needs to address it because it sounds like he still wants a concession from McCarthy that if they punt, this reminds me of actually what Democrats were going through mm -hmm. with the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. If they punt, um, they need to promise other things, or he's saying there's going to be no punting at all. What is your sense of whether the White House would give an inch on any of that? I, I don't think they will yet, for sure. Um, and a funny side note on that IRS proposal that, that he mentioned, they, McCarthy told, and I think you saw that, McCarthy told him, look, I wanted to put that in but the problem is that according to the CBO and also according to all common sense and according to the reasons that we actually don't like this proposal mm -hmm. is that it raises a lot of revenue, something like $200 billion over the course of the next 10 years because you have more uh, resources to the IRS who can go over the tax returns and say, actually, you know, you, you pencil whip this one here. That's wrong. You had $700 yeah. in your Venmo account last <laughs> that's year. Right. So, pay, <laughs> so pay up. So it brings money in. So if they want to repeal the IRS, then all of a sudden they have to find another couple hundred billion dollars somewhere else. And they've ruled out Pentagon. They've, you know, they've ruled out Social Security, Medicare. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're looking under every couch cushion for every penny. They can't afford to be then also playing uh, this, I, this IRS game. So I, maybe the Freedom Caucus will like fold on that one. Uh, but you're right, they, they, they want you know, much bigger concessions from McCarthy, which then moves the legislation, A, farther away from getting 218 among all of Republicans, and B, farther away from anything serious. Because if, if it becomes something that is so clearly just kind of a fantastical wish list mm -hmm. of the right, then it's not a legitimate negotiating position. And that's what's hard for McCarthy to suss out right now, yeah. because to make matters even worse for him, there's a handful of members, Republican members, who don't want to, who, who will not do any debt ceiling negotiations, or not voting to raise the debt ceiling, period. Right. And so you have this combination of people who are saying, we don't want to do it, but we will do it if you give us this. And they're mixed in in the negotiations with people who are saying, we're not doing it, period. And so to cobble together, especially when you have such a thin margin as speaker, the, the, the coalition to get something like that done is incredibly difficult. So it seems like the odds are against him getting anything through the House, period, mm -hmm. through his own conference. What do you think? Do you think he, because if he doesn't, then he's really back to square one. What's, what's your guess as to whether he can get the Nancy Maces the kind of moderate-ish Republicans on the one hand and the Chip Roys and all the others who are, you know, demanding bigger concessions all to agree on a single package. I think this is the moment that it either all implodes or that McCarthy is walking, keeps walking a tightrope. And he has been adept at walking that tightrope, surprisingly so. I mean, I think some people, Politico ran a story last year like, is Kevin McCarthy dumb? Uh, was the headline, you might remember it. But he's been, you know, for someone that uh, has sort of gotten dismissed by the Washington press corps as like bumbling, he's been pretty adept at walking that tightrope within his own conference and uh, keeping Republicans, even though he 
had to go through, what, 20 votes to get the speakership. He got it. Um, and he's generally had mm -hmm. the support going forward. There haven't been a lot of, a lot of this hasn't boiled over um, and, and bubbled to the surface. And so to do that, I know it's only been a few months. It's actually pretty crazy if you look at what the Republican conference is like right now. So he could continue to walk that tightrope. Um, I wouldn't bet against him. At the same time, it's just so hard when you have people who are not voting at all for a debt ceiling mm -hmm. and people who are saying, eh. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't bet against him. I, he, he, because he's been giving so much when it comes to these hearings, when it comes to these investigations, they're more willing to give right. him a little slack. So then let's game it out from there, because anybody who's watching this or listening on the podcast who has a 401k is <laughs> deeply concerned about yes. whether or not we're going to have a repeat of 2011, which was a debt downgrade. And I think the stock market lost like 20, 25 percent mm -hmm. of its of its value before they came back. So basically what happened, what Boehner did in order to get his conference to agree to a debt ceiling increase back then was crash the car. Mm -hmm. like you're in a game of chicken. Yes. And you just have to crash the car. Yep. To just to prove to the people in the back seat. You'll do it. That we'll do it. And it's also it's gonna hurt. <laughs> like, <laughs> buckle, buckle up. Right. And so whether he passes something through the house or not, in order to get to a place where both Biden is scared enough to maybe come a little bit towards House Republicans, but more importantly, that the Freedom Caucus realizes that, you know, they've take they've they have they've fought as hard as they can. Mm. Uh, they've taken it as far as they can go. And that if they take it any further, they're not going to win and they're going to blow the car up rather than just kind of mangle it on the, on the side of the road, which, which means that he is, I, I don't see another route for him personally to get the debt ceiling done other than crash the car. I could see a route where it gets done where he gets ousted. You can vacate the chair and put somebody else in who then does it. And then you have another speaker fight after that to see maybe he even comes back mm -hmm. after that. But for him to personally get it done as speaker, I feel like he has to take 20% off the stock market or something before people are like, all right, fine. We, we did everything we could. There's a lot of pain. I'm getting yelled at by every you know, business owner in my district. Uh, okay, fine. Let's do the debt ceiling. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally see how that's... I mean, it's the, the option that Boehner went with, except the difference between Boehner and McCarthy is that McCarthy prides himself on being a unifier, whereas Boehner had gotten to the end of his rope with the kind of people who had come in in that wave and were anti-Obama and the, the sort of Tea Party era Republicans. He just said, screw it. Um, it's harder for me to see Kevin McCarthy doing the same thing. That said, uh, it, tactically, it's not the end of the world because if you are an establishment Republican, you pin the blame on the crazies, the cuckoo birds, uh, to quote a, a senator at the time, uh, that might have been 2014, but you can blame it on the crazies. And that's why the White House has the upper hand in all of this. They don't need to give an inch because uh, politically they know that it'll all come back on Republicans. The media will help them frame this as a totally the fault of Republicans. Um, the fiscal responsibility of the country in general will fall on Republicans. Uh, currency downgrades, everything um, is going to fall on Republicans because they're gonna look obstructionist. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge, like, the White House just simply does not need to, that's policy question aside, at least on the political strategic messaging front, that's why they have the upper hand. So yeah, we're gonna crash. We might crash, although yeah. if, I mean, remember Kevin McCarthy charmed Jim Jordan of all people, um, and because he has been willing to give so much, 
he does have some slack. There are some things that he can give them to make it work, and he's done it before. So, uh, if you remember, it took him what four or five days. It took him a long time. That's a long time in terms of a market crash. Right. I don't see this happening by next week. There's no way. Right. We'll see. We'll see. We'll uh, see. Maybe I shouldn't say there's yeah. no way. We can. He might over the weekend. They might work on something. Who knows? And and for fun, the, the other point I would add is that when Republicans are kind of forced to then put their own ideas forward. Uh, one reason Democrats feel like they're in a good position is because you start to get stuff like Buddy Carter. Did you see his uh, his suggestion? Let's see recently? it recently. All right, we let's roll, throw Buddy Carter here. We will we will be able to to capture that underground economy, if you will. As as distasteful as it may be, the the, the pimps, the prostitutes, they're going to be paying taxes because they consume. They go out and they buy groceries. They go out and they buy stuff. And that's where you're going to be paying the taxes on. So that's Buddy Carter making his argument for basically a 30% like flat sales tax to mm -hmm. just hit everybody, the pimps and the prostitutes. And, and then get the, the, all the taxes out of the way. There you go. But I think a lot of people, aside from kind of how funny it is to hear Buddy Carter talking about how he's going to tax the, the pimps and the prostitutes, people are going to wait, 30%? So all working people... Now, middle class people, everybody's going to pay 30% sales tax on their on all of their consumption, while which is going to be extremely regressive. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just feel like when they when you get into these debates, the Democratic view of let's fund good things, education, health care, you know, climate climate spending, and let's fund it and let's uh, tax billionaires and millionaires to do that. Uh, that position is just more popular than oh yeah let's put a 30% you know sales tax on on everything or let's do a flat tax or let's do yeah. let's cut this so that we can do uh, you know tax cuts for the rich down the road it's way more palatable to say we're going to you know not upset the apple cart in the near term it's very hard, and Macron is learning this right now. A lot of lessons for Republicans <laughs> over in France. Um, you can obviously there are arguments that you need to do things to secure a safe and healthy future, along the lines of what Macron is making. That said, <laughs> there are ways to do it, and there are ways not to do it, um, and it's always going to be harder to do it than to not. So it's it's no easy fight for Republicans uh, going forward. There is a chunk of the country that won't be super pleased if um, Biden is just like, screw it, we're just going to keep raising the debt ceiling, blah, 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 I'm not going to make any cuts. Um, there's a chunk of the country that will be irritated by that, but it's not going to compare to, yeah, yeah it's, it's a, no contrast there, yeah. <laughs> or clear contrast, I should say. And so, meanwhile, Tucker Carlson continues to land some pretty big interviews. Uh, he spoke <laughs> with Elon Musk yes, yesterday. Let's roll a little bit of his, his interview with him. You, you were shocked to find out that various intel agencies were affecting its operations? Uh, the, the, the degree to which uh, various government agencies had effectively had full access to everything that was going on on Twitter uh, blew my mind. Um, I was not aware of that. Would that include people's DMs? Uh, yes. So he also addressed, that's that's one part of what he talked about, the combination of the government, the security state, and Twitter. He also got into generative AI. So let's play the second clip, and then we'll break it all down. Non-trivial, it has the potential of civilizational destruction. <laughs> There's movies like Terminator, but it wouldn't quite happen like Terminator, um, because the, the intelligence would be in the data centers. Right. Uh, the robot's just the end effector. 
But I think perhaps uh, what you may be alluding to here is that um, regulations are really only put into effect after something terrible has happened. That's correct. If that's the case for AI and we're only putting regulations after something terrible has happened, it may be too late to actually put the regulations in place. The AI may be in control at that point. So Musk then said in this interview that he was preparing to launch Truth GPT. We can put C3 up. He's trying to launch a, a truth-focused competitor to Chat GPT. That may seem naive. It may seem funny to people. Um, and I think there are all kinds of obvious difficulties that come with uh, trying to direct AI towards truth in the age where nobody agrees on what constitute tr constitutes truth or what the value of truth actually even is in the beginning. But he said, quote, I'm going to start something which I'll call Truth GPT a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. I think this might be the best path to safety in the sense that an AI that cares about understanding the universe is unlikely to annihilate humans because we are an interesting part of the universe. Unlikely to annihilate. Not great odds, <laughs> I would say, in terms of civilization. Um, but he has actually incorporated a company back last month called X.AI. This is according to Gizmoza, Gizmodo. Um, and uh, some reports say he's been reaching out to AI folks, trying to sign them on to his new gig, um, onto that new AI venture. He did sign that big letter uh, last month. I actually also signed it. Not, I'm not on the, the high-profile side of that, because it was like Steve Wozniak, uh, mm -hmm. Elon Musk, and and all of those other like tech giants um, saying that we need to pause uh, open source public AI, uh, generative AI, that is, until we can wield it responsibly, um, which is, I think, an important point to make. So he was instrumental in the founding of ChatGPT, of OpenAI, um, and has been disillusioned, soured on the project. Now, Steve Bannon clapped back to all of this. We went C4 up. He had some words to say. Uh, he called Elon Musk a snake oil salesman and said, quote, you're a fool if you trust him. A lot to unpack, Ryan, as they say. Well, so we've got a couple uh, motivations to unpack here. Uh, I've been really gratified to see uh, Elon Musk's kind of uh, jihad against the, uh, against AI because I, I it, this stuff does scare me. Yeah. Like it do, and the point that you only regulate after something uh, bad happens is something that liberals, progressives, and the left have all been saying for years. And so we ought to get ahead of it. And I, so I'm in, in complete agreement with it. You also see a lot of people who say that Musk is actually just cynically saying this stuff because he's behind when it comes to the AI race. So that's why he wants this pause. And so to, to have him come out with his own AI thing, but good AI, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, God. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe that is where this comes. Whatever. It, it, it takes uh, different uh, bedfellows to build a coalition. So if there are some people who are cynically opposing the, the explosive growth of AI at this point, while, while others are like genuinely, earnestly opposing it, whatever, it's all, it's all opposition. And whatever we can do to kind of get, get a handle on this before it gets a handle on us, I think is a good thing. When it comes to Bannon's motivation, yeah, he's he's banned from Twitter. Yeah, he, and he's he, salty that he can't get back on. Musk refuses to unban yes. Steve Bannon, which is something I forgot about until I read that yes. article. I was like, really, this is what we're doing. Uh, but he also says that Musk is on the wrong side of China, and I think that's a which, good, pretty good point. We've covered that before. He opened that big factory, literally in and, Xinjiang. And didn't Bannon get arrested on like a 
some Chinese mogul's yacht. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so all of this is, none of this is clean, like pure intellectual kind of jousting. No, there's <laughs> like, a lot going on. Yes. Um, I do think this gets to the sort of Musk Taibbi versus Mehdi Hassan debate in a, in a sense in that, and we went back to that first clip where Musk says, the degree to which various government agencies had effectively full access to everything that was going on on Twitter blew my mind. Effectively full access to everything that was going on on Twitter. Some of those early revelations from the Twitter files um, that wouldn't have happened without him were that constant meetings with the FBI, constant communications with government agencies about potential censorship and actual censorship, um, whether you're, uh, you, you think the degree of the censorship was warranted, the Hunter Biden pictures, or it was limited or not, it was happening, bottom line. We know that because of the Twitter files. We know the sort of contours of what was happening because of the Twitter files. And it was interesting on the right that a lot of people came to see Donald Trump as like a, a blunt force object and a net good. All of these different problems, mm -hmm. obviously, all of these different competing motivations. Is he trying to, you know, get his brand back in shape, make money, whatever it is? But then even people who accepted all of that said, well, he's a, useful as a blunt force object. There's probably a parallel going on with Elon Musk um, in that I think there are clearly a million different problems. Um, but I also feel like there are a lot of things we wouldn't know if not for Elon Musk. And this AI debate actually is is changing because of Elon Musk in a better direction, whether or not that's because of pure motivations. And it's not just U.S. intelligence agencies that had access uh, to DMs. We also know that Saudi Arabia, which is a significant, continues to be a significant owner in Twitter, was running an entire intelligence operation uh, in which they were bribing engineers in order to get them, uh, to give them information on dissident uh, DMs and, and locations as as well, and there were there was even a trial about this. Like this is not a cons this is, is a conspiracy, but is is one that was rolled up. But it's not one that had any consequences for people above the engineers. Basically, mm -hmm. uh, that's why you and I, when we were talking about this initial sale, were saying that the one thing, the one major thing he could do uh, to show everybody that he's taking these concerns seriously and is operating in good faith is to encrypt direct messages mm -hmm. in a way that makes it so that Twitter itself does not have access to the messages. So that you can, you can come with bribes, you can come uh, with a warrant, it doesn't matter, it's out of our hands, we don't have, we don't have it. Yeah. Like you, get, you gotta get it some other way, like by when somebody screenshots it and posts it to Twitter, mm -hmm. like Twitter, like Musk did with his uh, signal messages with Taibbi. Like, <laughs> if you want to get messages, it's going to have to be old-fashioned way. You're right. not going to be able to. There's going to be no back door for you. I mean, uh, get out a Polaroid and take a picture of the screen. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's <laughs> what you got to do. Uh, so uh, un until he does that, I'm going to take everything he says on these questions with a grain of salt. Hopefully, hopefully he does though. Like, it, it, it is. I am as a journalist always nervous when people are DMing me mm -hmm. uh, through Twitter if they're trying to say stay secure and you know a best practice is really to then v immediately delete like mm -hmm. move them move them over to signal yep uh, and then and then delete the exchange uh, sometimes they can go back and find it but you're always much better off if it's just not there because right. if you do get hacked you oftentimes what hackers can find, or if say an engineer comes in the back end, what they're going to see is what's there, mm -hmm. and it's it takes them an extra couple layers to go back and find things that have been deleted. Uh, but yes, it's it's something that people should be aware of that you do not necessarily have privacy in your 
private messages. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, so you're right. There are a lot of things that need to happen. Uh, I think, you know, obviously both of us would always take him with a grain of salt because he's a powerful mm -hmm. billionaire who's in charge of, like, what, I don't know, 20% of the world at this point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah. It's impossible to quantify, but a lot. So always take that stuff with a grain of salt, of course. Um, Publicly funded billionaire, we should add. Yeah, <laughs> yes, funded by all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful, really, when you think about it. It is, it is. It t takes a village. It sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a village. All right, moving on to a crazy story out of Oklahoma. One of the strangest things unfolding in the news cycle right now. We can put the first element up on the screen. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt has called on a group of officials to resign after what he calls, quote, horrid audio has emerged. We actually have some of that audio. It's officials in McCurtain County, Oklahoma. They, uh, this is a recording, it was obtained by News 9, um, actually from another reporter who left his phone in a room, and we'll get into all of this, mm -hmm. but as the meeting was going on, the public had been dismissed from a meeting. These officials in McCurtain County, Oklahoma, kept talking. Uh, the audio made its way to News 9 in Oklahoma. You'll hear some interesting things about hitmen um, that come out of left field, yeah. but let's go ahead and roll that. Yeah, but the thing of it is, you know. We actually told the truth. I've, I've known two or three hit men that were very quiet guys. Yeah. And would cut no fucking mercy. Yeah. In Louisiana, because it was all mafia around yeah. Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but here's the reality. It's a hair on his wife's head, Chris Lindham's head, or any of those people that really were behind all that, if the hair on their head got touched by anybody, who who would be the bad guys? Yeah. yeah. So that's Sheriff Kevin Clardy, Commissioners Mark Jennings and Robert Beck and Alicia Manning um, with the Sheriff's Department. And they, the Sheriff's Department is claiming this audio may have been altered, and obviously they're making the claim that it was illegally obtained, which we can talk about a little bit, but the sheriff's office is saying, according to News 9, the audio does not match the, quote, transcription, um, which is pretty... I'm sure it doesn't. That's, <laughs> that's quite interesting, and none of these folks have resigned, as of right now, at least. So the governor calls on you to resign. I think they were actually expelled from, like, the sheriff's association, or one of them was, um, but they still have not resigned. Which leads me to believe they think there's some reason they can weather this. If they're coming out and straight up saying the audio has been doctored and altered, that tells me they think they have something that still hasn't been made public. Maybe they do or maybe they don't. I don't know that there's any context that makes talking about hiring a hitman and where you could hide a reporter's body <laughs> better. I'm not sure that there's any context here that's going to make that better for these public officials. Um, it is interesting, though, because we still haven't heard anything about that, and it's been a couple of days. And even worse in some of the audio, you, you, they get to a place where they're, they're talking about, it sounds like they're talking about some black citizens in Oklahoma that they have a problem with. Uh, and they come back with, you know, back in the old days. Uh, basically, you, the, the thrust of what they're saying is basically in the old days you could just lynch them. Can't do that anymore. And they're kind of lamenting that uh, it's, it's unfair that now, you know, their, their, their hands are really tied in the way that they can 
uh, you know, su suppress opposition to them from the African American community. And so I, it doesn't sound like it's faked. Uh, we are in a world of deep fakes, but we have to, you know, that we're in a world of potential deep fakes, but we also have to like use our own powers of deduction. Like what are the, what are the, what are the chances that the story that was told is accurate, uh, which is the phone left in, on record and these people talking like this, uh, or the other one that there's some sophisticated deep fake operation aimed at these, you know, fairly random and obscure officials in Oklahoma. Like, who and why would be responsible for that? Yeah, I, although, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, if they have evidence, then they have had it. time yeah. to come forward with the evidence. It's been, this broke last week, and so it's been several days. If they have evidence that says it doesn't match a transcription, that the audio was doctored, I would think that by now, we would have, if it's good evidence, that it would have been there. If they're trying to just bury the story, I hope it goes away and not force these folks to resign or have much blowback continue. This is in national news. Obviously, we just showed you the Washington right. Post headline um, covering the story from McCurtain County, Oklahoma. Then that leads me to think that the, the path they're following now suggests the evidence may exist, but it's not good. Um, that it may just be something they can point to to say, we can't verify this. You know, at the end of the day, we just got to go with our gut. We got to trust our guys. Um, and we don't, you know, think they would say anything like this in this context, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe they have something they can point to like that. I think if they had really good, solid, clear evidence, we would have seen it uh, way sooner than now. Right. And if their answer is, well, we didn't transcribe anything about uh, our, our, like, uh, right. pining for the days of lynchings and our, and our right. talking about hitmen. So if we didn't transcribe it, we certainly couldn't have said it. Like, that's, that's not the most persuasive argument. But like you said, if they've got evidence. Let's see it. Here we are. Like, you reach out to counterpoints. DM Ryan yeah. Graham. DM He'll delete it right away and move to Signal. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. So um, the other thing I would mention is that the reporter left his recording, his recorder in the room because he was trying to prove, he says, that the officials were having secret meetings. And that's where the reporter gets, uh, that's where the recorder gets left in there. Now, Oklahoma, I think it's a one party, or you have to have two parties consent to recordings. So you can't just technically leave a rec uh, recorder. The local news, uh, News 9, quotes um, someone saying, there were multiple pub public officials sitting in this public space um, having a conversation. The sheriff is not going to be able to make a case for illegal wiring, taping, or improper recording based on those facts. That's according to Ed Blau, who's mm -hmm. quoted in the News 9 story. Um, I don't know. I, I obviously am not super familiar with uh, the laws in Oklahoma. If you do need two people to consent to report to a recording, um, it may be different though if you're in a public space and you're public officials. So it looks like it looks like Oklahoma is a one-party consent. Oh well, um, then geez. But the problem here is that the one party who consented left the room, mm -hmm. so you no longer have any of the parties consenting. Then the question becomes did these officials have a legitimate expectation of privacy? And if they did, then it would be w illegal wiretapping. Uh, but if they did not have an expectation of privacy and that you could argue, and I think this is the case that yeah. they're trying to make, that no, this is a public meeting, or, or it, it should be a public meeting because you have denied that you hold private meetings. Right. So therefore, either you lied about having a private meeting uh, or this is a public meeting. If it's a public meeting, you have no expectation of privacy and recording is just fine because I, I can walk into a, a yeah. city council meeting and hit record. Yeah. 
there's nothing there's nothing illegal about that. Uh, so uh, either way, it's out. This is this is secondary. Like Linda Tripp, uh, she <laughs> she did get charged, uh, but we still got the whole scandal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 We sure did. Let's talk about Jeff Jackson. Um, he's a representative out of North Carolina, a Republican, and he has been, since he took office, he started- Fascinating guy. Super interesting. He's got a Substack, he's got a TikTok, a Twitter, um, and before we get into all of that, let's roll his most recent video, which is going really viral right now. I'm still brand new to Congress. I've only been there 100 days. And I don't know if I'm not supposed to say this out loud, but it's true and important, and if you don't know this, you need to. It's really clear from working there for just a few months that most of the really angry voices in Congress are totally faking it. These people who have built their brands around being perpetually outraged, it's an act. I've seen a bunch of examples. Here's one. I've been in committee meetings that are open to the press and committee meetings that are closed. The same people who act like maniacs during the open meetings are suddenly calm and rational during the closed ones. Why? Because there aren't any cameras in the closed meetings, so their incentives are different. What I've seen is that members of Congress are surrounded by negative incentives. There are rewards for bad behavior. You know what the big one is? Being able to reach you. The big thing that modern media and modern politicians have learned is that if they can keep you angry, they'll hold your attention. And they both want your attention. So if you're a politician and you show certain media outlets that you can help them keep their audience angry, they'll give you their audience. So that I checked on Twitter as of last night had 1.4 million views. I don't have a TikTok, so I couldn't see how many views it got on TikTok. But he has 1.7 million TikTok followers um, and 150,000 Twitter followers. So millions of people have seen that video by now. Yeah, there's a real hunger for people to just speak plainly uh, to them. And, and there's a massive amount of distrust. And the angry voices that, that he's talking about, and he doesn't specify uh, who, who they are, but we can you know, take some educated guesses, they, those angry voices are exploiting that same lack of trust. So he's now saying, no, actually, the people that are trying to yeah. tell you that they're the ones that can be trusted because they sense that you don't trust Washington, mm -hmm. they're, all, they're lying to you too. Right. And I, I loved his last point where he says, the next time you hear something crazy from somebody and you think, how is it possible that they could actually believe this? Ask yourself, do they actually? Mm -hmm. believe this, or are they just telling you that? And you're right, it's, it's both the attention economy, but the actual, and also the actual fundraising economy. Because every time, that, in order to raise small dollars, you have to stand out from the pack. Mm -hmm. In order to stand out, it's a ratchet effect. You have to you know, continue to shock uh, greater than you shocked before, because we have this capacity to you know, quote unquote normalize uh, behavior that we've seen recently. So, yeah, the only way is to just be even more abnormal. Yeah, so he says the same people who act like maniacs during the open meetings are suddenly calm and rational during the closed ones, and you might wonder why nothing gets done in Washington if people are actually able to function behind mm -hmm. closed doors, um, but it's because what happens outside of those closed doors still trumps what happens behind those closed doors because he makes a really good point. He uses the word incentives. That's exactly right, because the incentive system that's set up now is not for reconciliation, um, literally or metaphorically. <laughs> It's not for reconciling left and right and getting work done. Um, it's not for really serving the public, and we'll talk about that actually in the next segment. The incentives are for media attention and fundraising, and he's, he's not wrong about that at all. 
Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting that he does is some of his early videos especially really peeled back the curtain on how Congress actually functions. Um, there's a great documentary on HBO. Um, it's called The Swamp, and it started as a, a Facebook series that followed members of the Freedom Caucus, like Thomas Massey, and uh, they, it gets into lobbying. It gets into, like... Uh, uh, who who's in it? There's there's some people on the left in it too, um, but it's it gets into it like exactly how you get that committee seat you want, mm -hmm. exactly how close the RNC is to Capitol Hill Club, so where the lobbyists right. are um, and where the members are, and how close both of those things are to the Capitol. Um, I think he should do more of that. Um, if if he gets into like being sanctimonious about other people being angry, I'm going to find that annoying. <laughs> right. Because people have good reason to be angry, even yeah. if their representatives are cynical. Right. If I were going to play devil's advocate or like Marjorie Taylor Greene's advocate, <laughs> I, would, I would say that whether it's cynical or not, she is tapping into something real. Yes. And so even if she... like, And so is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right. So w whether or not that... W whether or not that comes from a genuine uh, belief in lasers or whatever, space, space, whatever, whatever that thing is that she always gets made fun of for, uh, isn't the point. The point is that it's a democracy and she's chan channeling something real in a representative democracy. You gotta have everybody represented and all, all different passions represented from, you know, what, from AOC all the way to uh, MTG. So uh, in, in that sense, I, I would say that, yeah, okay, it probably is, some of it probably is fake, but the function of it is what those people want. Mm -hmm. They want the system uh, to be shaken up. And then, it, yes, it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle so that people who do want get, that, yes. you end up never getting um, anything done because to, in order to keep fundraising and keep the media attention on you, you have to not give people what they want, but tell them what they want is always more. You always want more, and it's never good enough um, because you're trying to keep the media attention on yourself. And so I do think it's like a vicious cycle. I think that gets to the incentives point that Jeff Jackson is making, which is a very good one. Um, that said, Steve Kornacki did a super interesting look back at Newt Gingrich's rise to power on a podcast uh, earlier this year. It was really good. And one of the interesting things about Gingrich's rise is how he used the early days of C-SPAN. He saw C-SPAN cameras and he realized that if you went out there when nobody else was on the floor and made these grand speeches that serve no purpose because nobody's listening to them <laughs> in Washington, D.C., now with a C-SPAN camera, you can get media attention, you can generate um, you know, all kinds of interest and intrigue by talking in these C-SPAN cameras. And a lot of people would point back to that and say, that was a cynicism. Uh, that was a, that was a really cynical moment in politics that took us down a different course. Um, you know, people who were here before Newt Gingrich will say that you know he he really came in and splintered everything. You know, nobody was able to get along after any of that. To that, I would say, um, and Kornacki gets into this. You know, Democrats had the House for what 40 years um, before Gingrich and company came in and shook it up. And I get it. I know that it's frustrating um, when we can't get anything done. I think that is a completely legitimate point. But that total like sense of compromise and cooperation in Washington, D.C. is not good either, uh, right. unless it's rooted in um, something else, unless we change the incentive system. It's not good when you see everybody in Washington, D.C. glad-handing and backslapping. Right. right, everybody laments that the, the era of the dinner party is over, where yes. every, all the two parties get together and 
uh, they're, they're so friendly without realizing that what that was also doing was dr basically draining democracy out of elections, that mm -hmm. it didn't matter who you sent to Washington, and they're going to basically kind of, do, you know, work together to do the same thing. Yeah, I'm sorry that uh, Newt Gingrich came along and made it harder for Ted Kennedy and who else was it to have the waitress sandwich? Remember uh, that? Was it Chris Dodd? It was Chris Dodd, I yeah. think. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry he upset that. <laughs> I'm so sorry he drew attention um, to all of that. Again, you can think his motives are cynical, but there's something obviously real being tapped into. The question that Jeff Jackson raises, which is a good one, is that our incentive system sets it up so that it's never reconciled, that it's never fixed, because you keep having to pit yeah. people against each other. Right, and, and the advent of social media adds an element of it that we do need to be cautious about. Agree completely. Not just it's just the same thing that cable news did. Yeah. Speaking of bad incentives in Washington, D.C. and how you can never bring left and right together to actually solve a problem, I want to talk about some news that just hasn't gotten enough coverage this week. Uh, there's a new bill that was unveiled by Senate Democrats. It's called the Ethics Act on stock bans, on stock trading bans in Congress. Um, this is from... F F1 here? Yeah, here's from the Washington Examiner, which got the scoop ahead of the announcement. Senate Democrats are set to unveil a sweeping proposal to ban members of Congress from trading in the stock stock market. The bill dubbed the Ending Trading and Holdings in Congressional Stocks Act, there's a nice little acronym, would immediately prohibit lawmakers from buying or selling stocks. It would also require them and their spouses and dependents to divest from certain assets or place holdings into a qualified blind trust, a proposal that wouldn't apply to lawmakers who were only recently elected this Congress until their next election. That's pretty key. The other key part of this, and the examiner continues to note it, uh, lawmakers are going to be subject to civil penalties if they don't comply. That could be equal to one month's pay or, quote, an amount equal to 10% of the value of each covered investment that was not divested or placed into a qualified blind trust. Interestingly enough, Merkley, Jeff Merkley, tried to get Josh Hawley's support for the Ethics Act. Hawley actually introduced his own legislation called the Pelosi Act, um, but this is different. So as Merkley's trying to get Hawley in to cooperate with his bill, um, because they'll, they'll probably need good Republican support on this, Hawley says it should absolutely uh, make it so that, uh, this is him saying, that sitting senators and their spouses should have to divest their holdings before re-election. And he's saying that the Ethics Act allows them uh, to not do that, which, so that's every six years. If someone was just elected back in, back in 2022, they can basically amass their fortune and play with that money for the rest of their lives. I think that's a good point from Holly's, persp Holly's perspective. If that's the only sticking point that he has, it's not worth not supporting this bill over. Um, but Politico did a roundup of some folks' reaction to it. Ron Wyden is, uh, as you can imagine, pretty skeptical that Republicans are going on board. He said, quote, we'll have to see. Mike Crapo of Idaho, he's a Republican and he's the committee's uh, ranking member here. He says, quote, we've already got a rule that any trades have to be recorded or sales have to be recorded. And I think that's an appropriate approach. Uh, Bernie Sanders had a great quote to Politico. He said, to be honest with you, it's not an issue that's really on my mind right now. He is a sponsor of this bill. He's a right. co-sponsor of the Ethics Act. So it's just like a classic, funny, 
Bernie quote, Hawley told Political, this looks like Obamacare where they write a law and every member of Congress is exempt from it. Remember the Stock Act was passed in 2012. That required members um, and actually was in response to some serious allegations against the Pelosi's. Uh, the Stock Act required uh, reporting within 45 days of, of trade. So basically, like, more transparency about what was being traded. Um, and I think it's a good example of what Holly was talking about and that nobody complies with it. And when they do comply with it, it's like, okay, you can have the, the great work that Unusual Wills does, um, but, eh, you know, they'll just keep getting rich. And unless it's going to be a key issue in their district, when people are voting on whether or not they can have health care, whether or not they can feed their families um, and inflation and all of that, we'll just keep getting rich and screwing you over. So I, I think it's a good point. And anytime you see legislation like this, it has good support among Democrats. It, it's uh, the House version of it is sponsored by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So obviously some Democrats are rallying around it. I think there's always reason to be skeptical. I think the point that Hawley makes is one of those reasons to be skeptical. Again, I don't think it's a sticking point that's worth holding up the bill over. Um, whether that this ever even gets to the floor, that would be up to Chuck Schumer. Um, and then you would obviously need McCarthy and uh, be an interesting question on the House side, too, and it would need to be signed by Joe Biden, um, who, to some extent, I guess, has already made his money, and that's another interesting area <laughs> of inquiry right now, of course, um, by Republicans. So if we're trying to talk about how people are exploiting their positions of power and exploiting public service to get extremely wealthy in ways that are not available to members of the average public, to average members of the public, as Republicans are in the Biden case, um, you know, it's in, and as they have been when it comes to Pelosi for years, a lot of the reporting on Pelosi was done by Peter Schweitzer, who's a great reporter. Uh, then this is something that they should, frankly, get behind uh, if they can solve this loophole problem. But anytime you see legislation like this coming, assume there is a loophole because it is too good to be true if you see a big group of members of Congress rallying behind something that will actually significantly cut into their own interests and their own ability to make money. Uh, there's always a way around it somewhere in the bill. Uh, maybe maybe that's not the case, but if anything is getting passed, like the Stock Act uh, actually did get passed in 2012, um, you, you have to expect it to be completely watered down. And I know that's incredibly cynical, but that's where we are in Congress right now. And uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons, uh, but people are able to, to come in um, and, and make a bunch of money, and it's not technically insider trading. And, and Sagar and Crystal have covered this a lot, and Ryan and I have covered it too. Um, we, we all sort of know how it works. It doesn't have to technically be insider trading um, to you know just hear the whispers of lobbyists and of people on your committees and, and kind of know what the right move is. So blind trust, that's also, there's loopholes in blind trusts, um, and maybe uh, Ryan, that's a great place to toss it to you on. Uh, this is a, an interesting bill. It does have a lot of support among Democrats, like I think almost 20 co-sponsors. It's got a lot of support. Ryan, you have some crazy audio. We've already played some crazy audio, but you have more crazy audio to share with right. us. Um, what have you got? So Lauren Windsor, a reporter over at The Undercurrent, uh, obtained some, uh, some audio of a, uh, basically it's a Chris Sununu fundraiser. So Sununu is a very popular New Hampshire uh, Republican governor who uh, wins re-election. They, 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 re they have elections every two years up in New Hampshire. He wins them uh, uh, consistently despite the fact that all of the uh, members of the House from uh, New Hampshire are Democrats. The senators 
are, are now Democrats. And so Kellyanne Conway gets the mic at this uh, donor retreat. You, you'll hear him start to panic. He's uh, kind of fake panic, but maybe a little bit real. Like, oh God, oh God, here comes a here comes a tough question. The question she puts to him is, good for you that you keep winning, but it kind of sucks that you're winning while uh, Maggie Hassan was just reelected comfortably, that it's, they're all Democrats, and that they just picked up a bunch of, uh, Democrats picked up a, state, a bunch of state legislative seats. In other words, she's kind of asking, what are you doing wrong uh, that is allowing this to happen? And, and I think his answer is instructive. He turns it back around on hers. Let's, let's play a little bit of this first. I have the mic. Oh, hey, uh-oh, Kellyanne Conway has the microphone. Thank you, guys, this has been great. <laughs> I know she's gonna give me the toughest question. I love it. Let's I see. am. I am actually because yeah. we're friends, and I'm thrilled that you're governor of New Hampshire and you're a leader in our party. But I do want to ask you why you're the only Republican standing in the state. So you didn't run for Senate against Maggie Hassan, so I'll have to suffer her for six more years. A, why didn't you do that so we can have majority control? Yeah. B, why did the Democrats win 21 state legislatures? So basically, she's saying, you know, why are why are you winning, but the rest are losing? He gives a he gives a very long and instructive answer that you can you can find if if you uh, check out her her Twitter account or elsewhere. Uh, but but here's the essence of it. Let's roll this from Sununu. At the end of the day, I haven't had the right candidates, and unfortunately, the national issues of, of really where we drive on on those races are always tied to more of a national issue. It, it's been, um, it doesn't play well in a, in a reddish purple state like New Hampshire. It just doesn't. So when you have a, a weak candidate, they say, well, I'm just gonna defer to whatever they're saying out of Washington. And I had, look, I had General Don Bullard as a U.S. Senate candidate. I'm sorry, the guy was freaking insane. He was, he, he was a great man that served this country. A great man that fostered, that started talking about mental illness in the military before anybody else was doing that. But when it came to being a political candidate, my God. And part of the backstory there, of course, Emily, as you recall, is that Democrats did what they could to make sure that the freaking insane uh, Bald Duke was uh, the Republican nominee. But that doesn't totally absolve uh, Republicans for making him and, you know, for him ending up with the nomination. And so I'm curious for your take on his general point, which is that this, basically this MAGA stuff that's coming out of Washington plays well to the base but in swing states like New Hampshire, it's toxic. And to me, that, 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 that is kind of the best articulation I've heard from a kind of moderate Republican of the dilemma that the party faces, that in order to, in order to be a national figure, you have to believe X, Y, and Z, and you have to behave in X, Y, and Z ways, but that is going to undermine you in places like New Hampshire, which you need to win uh, you, know, you need to win to control the Senate and to and to win uh, and to win presidential elections as well. If Chris Sununu were sitting right here, I would look him in the eye and say, "Stop giving them reasons to want Bull Duke." All right, we are joined now by author, journalist, and professor Christian Parenti to talk about his uh, what uh, Vox called a buzzy new piece. <laughs> Uh, the headline, it's in Compact Magazine. It's, the headline is Trump's, you can put this up here, Trump's real crime is opposing empire. Uh, it has produced a couple of responses, the one I mentioned in Vox, another one in Foreign Policy by uh, kind of former Bernie Sanders foreign policy guy, Matt, Matt Duss. Uh, so, Christian, uh, we're, let's, let's talk through some of the points that, that you made here. Uh, so what is the, how would, how would you 
how would you lay out your general thrust of the piece here? Well, it's, I, I argue that Donald Trump is hated because of his foreign policy. That if you look at you know, what he did in office, there was a lot that benefited the 1%. So this is a critique from the left. And, and, you know, if you look at Trump from the left, you say, well, he passed massive tax cuts and the rich like that. And he pushed deregulation very aggressively. 85% of it was blocked through the courts. But, you know, he pushed a, 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 a right-wing agenda on political, on the economic front domestically. So why do they hate him? Why does the establishment hate this guy so much? If you look at his foreign policy, it starts to make sense because in the realm of foreign policy, his actions were anti-imperialist. He didn't have some sort of left-wing anti-imperialist sensibility, but what he did was very threatening to America's informal empire as established after World War II. He consistently talked about wanting to leave, and that is to say destroy NATO. He ordered the withdrawal of about a third of the troops in Germany, and Germany is a central hub for a whole region-wide network of U.S. influence. AFRICOM is run out of Germany. There's 150 nukes in Germany. There's 40 different bases that have American personnel in Germany, and they project power into 104 different countries. So he's attacking NATO, which was the centerpiece of American empire. He refused to start any new wars. Yes, he had some drone strikes and some missile strikes, but he refused to escalate in Libya. He refused to escalate and try and overthrow Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and he actually drew down troops and moved them over um, to where the oil is, famously. But there's not that much oil in Syria, and Syria doesn't export oil. It's like they produce like 300 barrels a day, 300,000 barrels a day for domestic consumption. Um, he withdrew troops from Iraq and from Afghanistan. He negotiated the end to the Afghan war, even if the dirty work of actually ending that war fell to Biden. That process of withdrawal was prevented all the way along, sabotaged by the, the, the Pentagon itself, and th thus it was delayed. He discussed withdrawing troops from South Korea. He, he floated the idea of withdrawing about a quarter of the 28,000 troops that were there. Uh, maybe not a quarter. He, wanted, he, he talked about withdrawing 4,000 of the 28,000 troops that were stationed in South Korea. He demanded that Korea pay costs plus 50%. And then that became his thing. He wanted every, every country that was housing U.S. troops to pay costs plus 50%. So he saw American empire as a poorly run security business in which the U.S. was being ripped off. He didn't see any of the benefits that come to American capitalism particularly, maybe not American capitalism, that implies all the workers and consumers as well, but to the American ruling class, the American 1% reaps many of the benefits of American empire. He didn't see that and um, took a hammer to the whole thing. He canceled the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He you know, wanted to unilaterally scrap NAFTA, but he had one of his top economic advisors stole the document off his desk by which he was going to do that. He then successfully renegotiated NAFTA. I mean, if you just all add it all up, the guy was a vandal. You know, he acted as a vandal towards the, the informal structure of American empire. It's interesting because if we cut to 
like the criticism from Zach Beauchamp over at Vox, he tweets, in just two countries, Iraq and Syria, Trump's drone war killed three times as many civilians as the Gulf War, Kosovo intervention, and Libya wars combined. And I think your argument is more interesting than that. Your argument is that if you weigh Trump's vandalism against Trump's hawkishness, it comes out on the side of the vandalism, that the, the, the his sort of vandalistic instincts um, were a net... Uh, in, in the aggregate, they were more powerful than the... They were a threat. They were... Yeah, no, yeah, if, if you could just flesh out threat. how you weigh both of those and come out on the side of the point that you raised in the article, which I agree with, because um, that seems like what you're doing, because you, you acknowledge that in the article. You say there were, there was dronings. Um, you don't dispute that, but that it, it weighs on one side more strongly for the benefit of a better foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it, his, his actions add up to destabilization of this very elaborate architecture of base deployments, military assets, treaties, relationships with individual countries through diplomacy, formal and informal. I mean, the entire, you know, the, the business relationships that the U.S. government and U.S. corporations have around the world, this entire structure has to be reproduced carefully. And he was doing the opposite. He wasn't consciously, systematically dismantling it. He wasn't a peacenik who was like, we're not going to kill anyone. The blood stops, the bloodshed stops now. No, he was a crassly transactional ADD vandal, you know? He wanted to close all the embassies in Africa. Partly, you know, he put it in the context of his other comments because he seems quite racist, right? I mean, he referred to Africa and Haiti, countries in Africa and Haiti in, in you know, really derogatory ways. But you close all the embassies in Africa. The embassies are a major source of, uh, you know, institutional footprint for the CIA. You know, he just he didn't, he didn't get it. And so I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a foreign policy elite or really any kind of elite in D.C. with this guy in power. It would be very frightening. It would be, in, you know infuriating and you would want to get rid of him. So that's that's the argument. It's not that Trump's foreign policy was ultra specific and um, that he was guided by high and noble ideas and that he had a plan for a new, totally coherent, different kind of foreign policy. I think he was he was reacting kind of episodically based on this tra crass transactional sensibility. We're getting ripped off enough of that. We want to get paid properly. But it added up to the most powerful player in the U.S. government vandalizing U.S. empire. And that, I think, alienated a whole class of quite powerful politicians, diplomats, and, and military and, and uh, intelligence-connected bureaucrats. And that, yeah. that helps explain why there is this campaign against him and his his followers. And it is not because he was in other ways attacking the class interests of the American elite. It was specifically in this realm. Yeah, and a, a lot of the progressive kind of critics of this essay that listed a lot of his kind of uh, militarist aggression uh, overseas, but I don't, to me, and, I, and I, I wanna list some of those for you to get you to respond, but to, but to me that doesn't necessarily undermine the point you're making. It, it might somewhat complicated, but it makes you think kind of a little bit more deeply about, well, what is, what is the empire and what part of it uh, is, is dis 
is uh, dispensable and what part of it is kind of essential to its operation and its power expression. But to, to, like to run, let me just let's run run through some of the things that that uh, that people would flag as uh, tr you know tr Trump kind of even one upping, say uh, Obama or Biden. You know, 20, 2017 and twenty eighteen, you know, he orders strikes. Uh, on Syria, like you mentioned, deploying some of the troops to the oil fields, but like you said, it's, these are actually m tiny oil fields, which Trump probably didn't even realize. He just thought they're over in the Middle East; they must have a lot of oil. Uh, he ripped up the Iran deal, uh, which you know the kind of national security establishment had been really hostile in a lot of ways to to the Iran deal. He then uh, kills Qasem Soleimani in in uh, what was that January of 2020, while he's also ordering. Uh, the Pentagon to come up with war games about, as we now know from Ken Klippenstein's recent reporting, uh, toward, uh, you know, to war game a war with Iran. Uh, there's reporting that he got very close to ordering airstrikes on Iran right after the election. If not for January 6th, there may have been, he, you know, he may have launched another, you know, set of airstrikes uh, against yeah, he Iran. He may have, but he didn't. Of, you know, the but thing he is, did. he didn't. Yeah. Right. Uh, what, else, what else we got? Uh, the, the coup, he backed a coup. But here, and let, let's start with, like, he, he tried to back a coup, a coup in Venezuela, Venezuela he backed until a coup. it started going bad, and then he yeah. didn't. Then he started talking about Maduro's good-looking generals. He referred right. to Juan Guaido as the as the Beto O'Rourke of Venezuela politics. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he, like, he, he, he had conflict with John Bolton. He explained to Tucker Carlson, not in an interview, but, uh, you know, according to sources, that he said, oh, yeah, I, uh, I use Bolton. Bolton makes me look crazy. You know, and, and Trump <laughs> has said that more recently, right? It's like, you know, you, you, the mad dog theory, you got you to, gotta, they got to think you're crazy enough to, to go there, right? I think you guys have discussed this on the show. I was talking about, like, you know, in his mm -hmm. interview with Tucker Carlson, I would use the, you know, making, making these threats about the N-word going, going atomic, right? <laughs> so, yeah, he played up that sort of stuff, which is probably somewhere lodged in his mind. Like, that's what Nixon did, you know? Um, yeah, but so, I, think I, mean, it, I just don't think that yeah. those things add up. I don't think those those things negate everything I lay out in this article. It's like the guy said stuff like again and again. He was serious about maybe we should scrap NATO. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like maybe we should take the engine out of the car and see how it runs. It's like that is that would be a massive blow to American empire. But I, I kind of interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, no. But what's on. fascinating is that if you get to the end of the Vox article you actually end up seeing the, the, the writer agree with you. Uh, he writes toward the end of the piece, this recklessness, and by this recklessness, he's referring to Trump's uh, asking for war plans for invading Mexico and like <laughs> all, you know, all these other things that he's, uh, that he's doing. He, he writes, this recklessness is actually part of why the foreign policy establishment is so implacably hostile to the former president. He has challenged the plans of the post-World War II international order, like NATO and free trade, which they believe ensure global stability. And his alternative is a foreign policy based on America's unrestrained, violent id, except for that last passage, and actually maybe even including that last passage. That passage could have come out of your piece, it's, it feels like. It's almost like they just don't want to give Trump what you gave him, even if it's accurate. I don't know. It's it's almost like a, a yeah. an attitude. No. Right, which which is I think it, uh, a a serious mistake for people on the left. Because another thing about Trump's foreign policy is that he's very intuitive. He's a very intuitive politician, right? He's like the idiot savant of American politics. It's like 
the jazz musician who can't read music but knows exactly what notes to play, right? And a lot of people in this country are anti-war, even as they're like patriotic and kind of machista in their kind of pro-military sensibility. They're also anti-war. You know, they like love the military but don't really want their cousin to go off to some country and possibly get killed and have all this money go over there. And people don't have to have a particularly sophisticated understanding of American foreign policy to not like a lot of it, right? Just be like, well, I, I don't really know where Ukraine is. I don't understand this, but I see that there's a lot of regular people being killed. And I mean, I, I just, I don't like this. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't like it. And I know it's expensive and there are needs right here at home, which are being underfunded, right? At that level, a lot of a lot of people have a, a pro-peace position. They don't like the empire, even as they love the military, right, and love the flag. And Trump taps into that, and he plays to that. And that, I think, it was very important in his initial election. I wrote an article for Nonsite years ago, right after the election, about Trump's rallies. I watched a whole bunch of them on C-SPAN. And it was... He, the whole anti-war, end the forever wars, bring the troops home, have a peaceful foreign policy, that was a very big part of his message, much bigger than xenophobic, racist, anti-immigrant uh, uh, talking points were part of his message, which were, I mean, they were clearly part of his message, but... Um, he so, talked about it constantly on the so, campaign so, trail. So those, those who were so hostile to the idea that Trump gains traction with voters because of his foreign policy, I think you're making a mistake because I think the Democrats should be more peaceful and that 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 politicians on the left, progressives, the squad, that they made a big mistake by supporting war, cranes, uh, war credits for Ukraine and all that. They should be much more, from Bernie on down to the rest of them, they should be much more hostile to American empire, not only because it's the right thing to do, but I actually think it would have traction with voters. I don't I don't think most Americans are into the American empire. Yeah, I think that's well said. And a good lesson because it, it, the left's, I think, resistance to what you outlined shows that they haven't absorbed uh, some of the political lessons, let alone the moral ones, but the political lessons of Trump's rise. Yeah, and, and just, just so people, I don't know, I wanna read this one more time from Vox. Trump has challenged the pillars of the post-World War II international order like NATO and free trade, which, which they believe ensure global stability. Like yeah. that, is, yeah. that is agreeing yeah. with your piece in, a, in an essay that says that they're disagreeing with it, yep. so, which I yep. think is so instructive about the kind of confusion of this time that we're, that we're living in. And, and some, some of it deliberate confusion and some of it earnest. Agree. Yeah. So Christian, um, uh, thanks. Okay. You know, go ahead. I mean, there, there's also, you know, there are the 1%, let's not let's forget this. I mean, they they gain, ben, they, they benefit tremendously from uh, the role of American empire. Part of why there's all this flight capital that props up real estate markets, props up asset values, is rooted in the fact that the U.S. projects power globally. And that's part of what draws money in that benefits the 1% and the speculator class, but not the, the regular people. And so there's that element in this resentment towards Trump as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, cheap raw materials and, yeah. uh, and cheap labor as well. Yeah. And, and when, you get to, when you get to those, then, then you see the 1% and the middle class kind of indirect conflict when it comes to the value of American empire, yeah. because yes, the middle class is gonna get you know, cheaper stuff that boosts the kind of consumer economy, but they're also getting 
uh, entire industries ho hollowed out and no longer yes, able to support families with wages. Yep. Deindustrialization is part of the blowback that comes from this global project of domination by subjugating the world, making it safe for foreign investment. Well, that means, you know, U.S. direct investment. That means those are the conditions, the preconditions for the departure of American industries. So, And that that's why it's married with like elite politics and the fashionable politics of the elite, because you see that in their aversion to this argument, even though they will walk through it logically and be like, well, basically it's right, but uh, it's icky. Right. And also, yeah, he's not nonviolent. Yeah. And, and I think we can all agree with that. He's yeah. not. No, I think that's right. true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well, Christian, thanks so much for uh, joining us. This uh, in, in fascinating, fascinating piece. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're all kind of groping in the dark on in in the, in this in this new politics. Yeah, and, and folks can check yeah. it out in Compact. Yeah. All right, thank you very much for having me on, and uh, good luck with the show. You guys Thanks doing so a great much. Job. Appreciate it. Before we started recording, we were even trying to like define the politics of Compact, right. which will publish like Zizek, and it'll publish um, you know Sora Bamari obviously is a big part of Compact, so it's a fascinating publication. I definitely recommend people check it out, and that essay is a great example of why. Yeah, and I saw I saw somebody on Twitter saying, "Oh, well, this is BS. Uh, people don't know that uh, Parenti actually supported uh, the Iraq War." I was like, "You know, I, I've I've known Christian for more than 20 years." <laughs> I, I, and I was like, I actually marched with him in 2002 <laughs> against the Iraq war. So I can personally uh, testify that, that he was not supportive <laughs> not of that war. Christian actually is, in, in many ways, is the, the reason I got into journalism. I got fired from this uh, job as a pot lobbyist. And he was like, come down to Bolivia uh, and, and cover this uprising mm -hmm. with me. That's back in 2005. And so I, I went down and there was an uprising. Morales ends up you know, taking power as a result of it. I think the next year he and I went to uh, Iraq mm. uh, cover, covering the, the the war over there at the time. And so, you know, we've covered the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the blowback and the impact of American empire yeah. um, ourselves. Um, so it, it would not be the case to say that he's like supportive of the Iraq war or it's like bizarre. American empire or something like that. Um, yeah, I, it, it, inter, interesting piece. And I, and I like the idea that what the left could draw from this is not that Trump is good or not that Trump is uh, nonviolent and not that Trump even has some coherent kind of, uh, foreign policy that the left ought to adopt, but that there are, are grains of uh, public sentiment that yes. can be gleaned from this and mm -hmm. that the left does have permission to be much more anti-war and much more anti-imperialist yeah. than it has been and would be re rewarded by voters for doing the right thing as a result. And what they could do is contra Trump actually put out a coherent American foreign policy that benefits the working class and the middle class, uh, rather than uh, then then you have a choice between a, a chaotic one where you're like, is this guy going to get us nuked? Yeah. In the process of doing this kind of vandalism, uh, or can we do we have a progressive vision of a of a uh, of a rollback of American empire that isn't going to get us nuked. And so much of it is, yes, the, the capitalistic part of it is important, but it's also just so wrapped up in elite signaling. If you look at MSNBC during the Iraq war versus MSNBC now, it is all warmongering. Like you are, it would be very rare to hear an argument like the one that Christian just made on MSNBC today, as opposed to MSNBC in 2007, 2006. And um, part of it is, I think, because it's, it's become very in vogue um, to just completely pretend that 
the 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 Iraq war didn't happen, right? That like we didn't learn any of those lessons and to cozy up literally to Bill Crystal um <laughs> in in some like very obvious And Nicole ways. Wallace. And Nicole Spoke Wallace. person for the Iraq war. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's a they're not reading the room. No. Not Even though it's right indeed. there. It's on a silver platter. Yeah, it's right there. Right well, that does it for us this week on yeah. CounterPoints. Uh, we hope everybody has a great rest of their week. We will see you back here next Wednesday. See you then. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.